Good morning, everyone. If you could just bow your heads uh, with me for just a quick moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, may every word and every thought and every song this morning be to your honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, as many of you know, I love telling stories. And I'm certainly not alone. As we, as we heard last week, sorry, just a minor adjustment here. As we heard last week, Ken told a story about, uh, about a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, this unknown woman who seemed to have, if I can quote you, a twinkle in her eye and a boldness to approach Jesus. Now, what are the key elements of a good story? Well, I think you need to have a character or some characters. You need to have a place where the story is happening. You need to have some details. You need to have a point of some kind, like a, a moral of the story or a funny ending or a punchline. And most importantly, you need to have timing, being able to say the right things at the right time. And I, I absolutely love telling stories because I get to lead people down the twists and turns and the ups and downs, the emotional highs and lows of whatever story I'm telling them about. And as I tell it, it's thrilling to bring them along on this journey because you're sharing not just the facts, but the events and the emotions that lead to that ending. Now to give you an example of a good story, I'm going to tell a story. Is that okay? All right. And because I'm saving some of my real stories for the future, I need to keep my, keep my um, what is a gunpowder dry, as they say. I'm going to tell the story about three ropes. See? One, two, three. Now, a very poor storyteller would simply say, there are three ropes, and at the end of it, one got a hamburger. Now, you would probably look at me and say, that is the worst story that I've ever told. But let me tell it to you with a character or characters, a place, some details, a point, and then some timing. So there were these three ropes, and they were standing outside of McDonald's, as you can see, like this and all three of them were hungry. And so the first rope decided, I'm gonna go into McDonald's and order a hamburger. So he goes in, he goes to the counter, and the person at the counter says, excuse me, are you a rope? And says, well, yeah, because they're honest ropes, right? Says, yes, I'm a rope. Well, I'm sorry, we don't serve ropes here. So he goes by and he's very dejected. You can see him kind of slouching over like that. And he tells his friends, you know, they don't serve ropes there. Well, the second one said, well, I'm far more persuasive than that. So the second rope goes in and he says, I would like a hamburger, please. And so the person at the counter said, I'm, I'm sorry, we, are, are you a rope? And uh, he said, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a very good looking rope. Look at me. You know, I got my hair slicked back. Look at that. I'm a good looking rope says, I'm sorry, we don't serve ropes here. 
So he goes, tells his friends, I didn't get a hamburger either, and slouched over. See how they're slouched over? They're very sad. So the third one said, well, I'm going in. So he twisted himself up to kind of disguise himself, and he messed up his hair so he doesn't look like his friends. And he goes to the counter and said, I would like a hamburger, please. And the person at the counter said, well, are you a rope? And he said, well, I'm afraid not. So, as you can see in that, there was a story there, wasn't there? There were characters, there were these three ropes. There was a place, McDonald's. Yes, I know I'm never gonna be asked to come up front again. Um, there were some details, they were hungry, but there was a policy in place, we don't serve ropes at McDonald's. There was a punch line, afraid not. And then there was timing, where I led you along this story and then, boom, I dropped the punchline and you said, I'm never talking to Paul again. <laughs> so when it comes to stories, passages like Matthew 16 that we read remind me of something in that I sometimes, I admit, lose track of the fact that these disciples were real people that were living a real story and that they were being pulled along this narrative. Because sometimes it's just too easy to just look at a passage and say, oh, those disciples, didn't they ever get it? Sometimes it's too easy to jump to Paul's letters for just a quick summary of Christianity or to jump to the conclusion, Jesus is the Messiah, the end or to slice a story into chapters and verses and just look at them in isolation. But the fact is through each gospel, these disciples were living a real story and they were being dragged along just as I was dragging you along with the story of these three ropes. Each miracle, each conversation, each lesson was added one on top of the other, each little detail added to the narrative until the spirit wove them all together and opened their eyes to the right, at the right time to the right conclusion in the story. So let's go back to Matthew 16 and I'll just reread this passage for you. Now, when Jesus came into a district, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, bless you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in, is, who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one 
he was the Christ. Now the passage opens with the disciples in an area known for its Roman paganism. Jesus and the disciples seem to stay on the outskirts of this area, almost like a nod to Matthew's primarily Jewish reading audience. The area was known for its spring, like a water spring dedicated to Pan, the pagan god of nature. So Jesus is in the district of this area, but not in the town itself. Kind of like those of us who live in Beaconsfield. We're on the island of Montreal, but we're not in Montreal. So we're kind of on the outskirts. And thus, they could avoid being considered defiled under Jewish law. Now, it was still an area that was very pagan and Roman dominated. And Jewish leaders would be paying very close attention to what was being said here in this place between Jesus and the apostles. Now, is Jesus, for example, in this area, is he going to upset this uneasy balance between the Jews and the Romans? Is he going to start a rebellion? Is he maybe even going to declare war? Good questions. Now, Mark and Luke also cover this passage, but they tend to jump over a bunch of details and go to the conclusion just as I did initially with these. But there are some really interesting details here in Matthew's account. Matthew lingers in this space a little bit more and shares some details that the others don't focus on as much. So what are some of the details that Matthew picked up in his account of this story? Now, Jesus in this account first refers to himself in the third person. He asks the disciples, who do people say that the Son of God is? Now, Jesus refers to himself in the third person, and Jesus had referred to himself, I'm sorry, who do people say the Son of Man is? Sorry, thank you. I saw a few of you saying, what's he talking about? So thank you for correcting me with your expressions. Um, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus referred to himself this way nine times in Matthew, and he does so again. He's using a literary approach called Iliism, which is speaking about yourself in the third person. Now, Iliism kind of has a bad reputation in today's world because it's quite often associated with narcissistic behavior. But in fact, it's a very useful storytelling tool, more often tied with emotional humility and maturity than narcissism. In speaking about yourself in the third person, you allow the teller, yourself, to talk about yourself from an external perspective. You allow the teller to talk about themselves more objectively, and it allows others to respond back in a slightly more honest and dispatched way or de detached way than otherwise. For example, if I were to approach, let's say, Scott or Eric, and I was having a private conversation with them and I said, so guys, when, when people hear the name Paul Houston, what do they say? 
And, you know, because it's in that third person, they may be a little more honest. They may say, you know, some people don't like the way, you know, Paul dresses, or they can't pronounce, you know, your, his name right, or things like that, Paul Huston instead of Houston. They might, you know, talk about some good things and some bad things as well. And so there's that little bit of detachment that can come when you talk about yourself in the third person. And so Jesus asked the disciples, so, so guys, who do people say the Son of Man is? And the answers he gets back are quite interesting. And it doesn't say who said what. It just says the disciples said. So you can imagine there's a bit of back and forth here. And so one of the names that comes up is John the Baptist, the one who was arrested for speaking out against immorality just a few chapters back and beheaded for the amusement of the daughter of Herodias. Someone mentions, oh, Elijah. That's someone, something that someone had said earlier. The faithful prophet who stood up to King Ahab and the prophets of Baal and the prophet who was expected to return either before or as the Messiah. And then someone mentioned, oh, yeah, 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 a couple of weeks ago, someone mentioned Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who warned the Israelites his in his temple sermon to turn from their evil path and was arrested as a result. And then other prophets were mentioned here and there. And, and you know, these, these different prophets, you know, most of whom had a history of speaking out against sin or, or corruption or pagan worship. And you can just imagine this, this bantering back and forth amongst the, amongst the disciples. Oh, yeah, didn't someone say this then or say that then? Something like that. But do you notice something that in this moment, the disciples are telling Jesus that people are seeing him in a, in a certain light. They're seeing him as a leader, as a teacher, as a moral authority, but maybe even as someone who will stand against the immorality surrounding them. There's even a hint of, you know, even revolutionary in this. Maybe someone who will restore Israel as a Jewish nation. And this is all very interesting, but then Jesus gets personal. He probably leans in and he lowers his voice and he calls the disciples in closer. And he says, okay, 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 fine. This is what people are saying about the son of man. Great, wonderful, nice, but who do you say I am? And he probably paused and looked around I was going to say looked around the room, looked around the campfire or, or the little area where they were. Who do you say I am? You heeded my invitation to follow me. You've seen me feed over 9,000 people and counting. You've seen me heal. You've seen me teach. Now, others have drawn these other conclusions, these others who have seen bits and pieces of the story. But from what you've seen so far, who do you say I am? What have you concluded from all of this? And how do you make sense of everything that you've seen? And bless Peter, almost like he's stating the obvious, which he often is, he blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And as an aside, isn't it interesting that Jesus initially asked who the son of man is, and Peter replies, son of God. 
son of man, son of God, humanity and deity recognized just in this short passage. So Peter blurts out this passage, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and he probably covered his mouth afterwards and said, oh, oh boy, what did I just say? Uh, could this have been considered blasphemy? If the pagans don't get me, chances are the other disciples will. But Jesus affirms this very impulsive statement. And he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood, these anonymous crowds that were being quoted earlier in the passage, only saw the leader and the teacher and the moral authority and even the revolutionary. But God revealed Jesus' divinity to Peter. We talked earlier about seeing the whole story and all of the details. And in contrast with the others, Peter had seen so much more. And from everything he had seen, he knew Jesus was more than a leader or a teacher or a revolutionary. He had seen the miracles, he had had the intimate conversations, and somehow he was prompted to see so much more. God the Father stitched the pieces into a storyline, and the result was this revelation. Now I wonder how much, how, or sorry, how many of us have had similar experiences, looking at the story of Jesus in parts and bits and pieces and quotes and and signs here and there, taking bits and pieces of the narrative to suit what maybe we had wanted him to be in the past, to just be a good teacher or, or a moral compass. But when we're hit with the totality of the story, all of the details sewn together, forced to acknowledge who Jesus truly was and is. So why didn't Jesus just leave it at that? Why didn't the story end just here? Why couldn't this have been Jesus's mic drop moment, his punchline, his conclusion of the story? Okay, you realized I am the son of God. Great. Now let's jump to the Great Commission. Go and tell the story. Thank you very much. Mic drop off the stage. Well, the story doesn't end here because the story isn't finished yet. Peter sees the Messiah but he still sees a bit of that political Messiah in there. He still sees Jesus as someone who will restore Israel, a political savior for the Jewish people, and I don't think he quite gets it yet because what he has yet to see is Jesus's arrest, his complete abandonment, his seeming powerlessness on the cross his death, and of course his resurrection, and his ascension, and him taking his place as the eternal savior for all mankind. So Jesus tells him, knowing this, shh, be quiet, and just wait for the rest of the story. And how does that story conclude? Well, I think Paul concluded it best, and we'll close with this passage, in that Jesus, in his full story, humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.